In today's episode, we look back at a hearing held in the Ohio legislature in consideration of our Article 5 application for term limits, fiscal restraints, and limits on federal power. Among those testifying words in Torum, who serves as a senior advisor to Convention of States Action. Other testifiers included Rita Peters, who serves COS as the Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs, as well as several members of the COS Ohio team. We now move on to um, House Joint Resolution 1, uh, Convention on States Re Resolution, and um, we'll start off uh, today with um, Senator Rick Santorum and Rita Peters. Welcome. And you can begin whenever you're ready, but thank you for coming. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all. Thank you all for, for coming here today. Um, this is a, an honor for me. It's the first time I've ever testified before a uh, committee of a state legislature. I've done a few con congressional and Senate hearings, but never, never uh, a state legislature. So this is a big day for me. So thank you for that. Um, I, I, I want to talk about the uh, Convention of the States Resolution. Uh, as someone who, uh, when the idea first came about about 10 years ago, I was not a supporter. Uh, I had some concerns. I'd never heard of an Article 5 Convention of the States. It was something new, something I was not familiar with, uh, and, and wasn't sure that, uh, that it, was, it was something that was necessary. Um, uh, the last 10 years have convinced me that, that that was not a wise decision. I've done the homework uh, in, in actually trying to understand what the Convention of the States was, uh, why it was put in the Constitution. It was put in by our founders. Uh, I would say it's sort of the, uh, the last resort. Uh, when things, uh, when power was starting to concentrate as they thought it would, because it always has in the history of, of nation states, started to concentrate in a central authority, and more importantly, when it started to concentrate in one person, uh, that this was an opportunity for you, uh, for the people who are closer to, uh, to the people, to uh, stand up against an authoritarian Washington and, uh, and push back and give us an opportunity to, uh, to, to remove some of that power and put it back where it belonged under the original Constitution at the state legislature or with the people. And I think what we've seen, uh, you know, I, I, I've always seen this concentration of power when I was in Washington, so Washington getting bigger and more powerful and doing more things. Here's the reason that sort of sent me over the edge, and that is now I see it in both parties. Uh, I hear Democrats say all the time about they're concerned about the authoritarian president. And they talk about Donald Trump and he's an authoritarian and they're worried about this other authoritarian. And so you hear authoritarianism all the time now from both parties. And, and, and there's truth in it. You're seeing executive orders and rulemaking and things that are constantly being challenged before the Supreme Court. Why? Because they're extending their executive authority and doing things that are outside of its purview. Supreme Court slaps a few down, a few a dozen. But the reality is Congress has become incapable of governing. They don't pass anything, they can't, they can't agree on anything, and so power continues to accumulate within the presidency. And so I speak to both parties when I say, don't you want the opportunity to be able to stop an authoritarian type presidency from happening by pulling some of this authority out of Washington and putting it back into the hands of where our founders intended it. And that's what Article 5 was intended to do. If you look at both sides of the aisle, you see both bases of the party, which is now the vast majority of Americans, who are upset, who feel strained and stressed at the division in this country, and that, uh, that they feel helpless or powerless to do something. Imagine a convention of the states where every state is able to come together and on national television debate what our constitution should be, what the limits of power should be in Washington, who should, be, who should, uh, who should uh, really be deciding education policy or health policy. Uh, 
right now you have a public that is angry and wants to focus on something. How about focusing on something constructive that the founders laid in place as an avenue for that outrage, an avenue for us to be able to, in a positive way, change and, and, and restructure some of the powers within Washington. And again, every state would have a vote. You would have the opportunity to send delegation there and to be able to, uh, to, to have, I'm sure would be a nationally televised uh, uh, convention that would educate our country as to who we are and what we're all about. I think this is a tremendous opportunity and you are the failsafe. You here in the state legislature. The founders trusted you with this power. They trusted you with the power to say, Washington, okay, we need to have a check. We need to do something here to, uh, to, to rebalance the equation uh, that's gotten out of control. And so uh, I hope you understand how serious this is and the opportunity that before you to do something that candidly of all the things you're ever gonna do as a state legislature will have a much more profound impact on the country than anything else you've ever done. And uh, that's, a, that's a great challenge but it's a great opportunity at a time when the country's divided. This country is divided, and my final point would be this. The reason our country was able to get along for so long is because we were divided. States are very different. California is very different than Ohio, and Louisiana is very different than Massachusetts. How do we get along? Because we have federalism, because we have communities that can, people can live where they want to live, where they feel very comfortable living there. When power gets concentrated in Washington and Washington tries to tell everybody that you have to live by the values of Washington, or whether it's the values of rural Ohio or it's the values of, uh, of, of, of New York City, whether the Democrats or Republicans are in charge, no one wants to be told that everybody has to live the same way. That's what we're hearing. So how do you fix that federalism? And how, how does federalism happen? Limit the power of the federal government so they don't have the power to tell everybody they have to live by the rules of California or they have to live by the rules of Wyoming. That's the answer. And you have the power right here in Ohio to do it. And that's what I would encourage you to do. I think it's a, it's a, it's a gift the founders gave you. It's a package that's never been unwrapped, but it's one that's time has come. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. If we just uh, if for one moment, if we could uh, withhold from clapping, uh, this is testimony time and we just need to keep to the testimony and go forward. Uh, we'll have more opportunity for testimony at later times, but this would be good to, to make sure that we keep this decorum. Um, Ms. Peters, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. I'm Rita Peters. I'm the Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs with Convention of States. And I want to thank you, Mr. Chair, for saying that. Now I won't feel bad when nobody claps at the end of my testimony. <laughs> so I think most of us here would agree that there is a problem in this country with federal overreach. And I want to first just briefly address the fact that Article 5 does provide the states with the right remedy to address that problem. Amendments have actually been used for this very purpose before and have been extremely effective. And I'll just give you the 11th Amendment as an example. It was proposed by Congress and ratified by the states specifically to reverse a wrong Supreme Court decision. That was the case of Chisholm versus Georgia. 
that had given the federal courts more jurisdiction than they should have had. So the problem was corrected. The founding generation didn't just sit around and say, they got it wrong, it's all messed up now, what are we going to do? They corrected the problem with a constitutional amendment. And that was the appropriate way to correct it. What we have in this country today is decades upon decades of federal overreach that has been sustained by the federal courts. And it won't be corrected this time through an amendment that's proposed by Congress because Congress seems to really love having the extra power. So the only way to correct the damage done to the integrity of our Constitution is for the states, for you, to use the power given to you in Article 5. I would also like to address concerns about the Article 5 convention process itself. A lot of people have concerns because they say, well, the details of the convention for proposing amendments are not spelled out in Article 5, so nobody knows how this process will work, and that seems scary. But I'd like to just point out that the term grand jury used in the Constitution is also not spelled out, all the details of how that process works. But it didn't need to be spelled out in detail because it was a well-known process already at the time it was used in the Constitution. And in the same way, we know how interstate conventions work because we have an extremely rich history of interstate conventions in American history for all kinds of purposes. And there has never been a runaway convention throughout all of that history. They have all worked as they were supposed to work, and not one of those interstate conventions that we've witnessed has abused its authority. The states have always defined and limited the purpose for these meetings, referred to as interstate conventions. Voting at them has always been done on a one-state, one-vote basis. And there is no record of a single one of them ever exceeding its authority. I have a book here I'd like to refer you to. It's called The Law of Article 5, written by Professor Robert Nadelson. And it goes into detail describing not only the rich history we have of interstate conventions, but also the numerous court precedents that have gone into interpreting Article 5 language and it's always been interpreted according to its history. And third and finally, I would just like to clarify and remind you that state legislatures are the bodies that direct and control the convention. It's important to understand how basic principles of agency law come into play here. At interstate conventions, the commissioners who are chosen to represent their state act as legal agents of their state legislatures who are the principals of the convention. They're the ones who instruct and send them with written commissions to perform at the convention. They don't just go and do whatever they want. It's kind of like you know a real estate agent acting on behalf of a homeowner that real estate agent doesn't just get to go and sell whatever property of the homeowner he or she wants to, but is limited to what 
the agent is instructed to do by the principal, in that case the homeowner. Same principles apply here. Commissioners to the convention are selected by the state legislatures to consider amendment proposals on the topics set forth in the application, and they're given commissions by you all, the state legislatures, setting forth the limitations, the legal limitations of their powers even within that framework. And then finally, I'll just mention again the ratification bar. It takes 38 states to ratify any amendment proposal that comes out of the convention. That is a very high bar. Thank you for allowing me to be here, and I'd be happy to try to answer any questions you might have. Okay, so we um, have questions for uh, Ms. Peters and uh, the Senator uh, Rick Santorum. We have questions from our committee. Okay, Representative Kelly. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I think my first question might be better addressed to Senator Santorum because it was about um, some of the things that he was talking about and the need for bipartisanship and figuring out how to work together and how this is a, a bipartisan effort. Um, and I guess my question is, you know, in reviewing some of the folks that have endorsed the idea of Convention of States, it doesn't look particularly bipartisan. Um, I know you were speaking at something and said, if every Republican state legislator votes for this and every Republican should, you can make this happen. I am all about trying to work together when we can, and I think that's what people expect of us. But I'm just wondering if you can help me understand how this isn't something that is just overtly partisan. Well, it's a convention of states that, uh, that every state in the country will participate in. Republican states, Democrat states uh, would all participate if it happens, if 34 states uh, ratify this resolution, approve this resolution, the convention will be held and all the states will participate. Uh, and, and as Rita just mentioned, 38 states have to ratify any amendment that comes out, which means you're going to have to get in all likelihood, Democratic states to ratify. So, I, I would suspect that you'll have uh, you'll have participation uh, in the process uh, to, if you're going to get amendments to be ratified that are going to have input from the other side. Number one. Number two. As I said before, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Most. I mean, we're we're in Nebraska right now, and we are hoping to vote on this in the next week or so. Uh, but I think three or four Democrats in the initial vote voted for voted for the. Uh, proposal. Democrats have voted for it in a, in a lot of other states. And my, I guess my pitch to you uh, is you should, be, you should try to be part of this process. I mean, if, if I read what I hear from, uh, from, the, from Democrats across this country, they're concerned about an authoritarian president. And I mean, I hear it all the time. Now, is it a real concern or is it just politics? If it's a real concern, then you should want to engage in seeing what we can do to stop that from happening. And there are things that we can do to limit power of Washington that doesn't mean that these issues aren't addressed. It's just where they're addressed and who's addressing them, right? And, and, I, and I think that's an opportunity for, uh, for Democrats to, to weigh in on that and, 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 and see an opportunity to, uh, uh, in, as a state legislator, reclaim some of the authority you have on the things that you were, you wanted to, you were elected to do. Uh, I, I, I would think I would welcome the opportunity to not have the federal government tell me what every education policy should be and, or, or health policy should be, that you have the ability to adapt those policies to the state that you live in and the communities you live and not live by a one-size-fits-all from Washington. That's, that's the point I was making. Can I just follow, follow up? up? Yeah. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And actually, you uh, gave sort of a good segue, and I'm not sure if this is um, a better question for you or for Ms. Peters, um, but just about this idea of where these issues are addressed and who is addressing them. I mean, I know you said that there are guardrails around this, so it can be just addressing very specific issues. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, who is actually in charge of this? You know, I know that you said, you know, in the past everything has been fine, but there hasn't actually been a constitutional convention since before 1800, and certainly a lot has changed, and, you know, the people have changed, and politics have changed, and norms have changed, and so I'm really just curious about practically who is in charge of it, and how do we really make sure that, you know, if there is a convention of states that it only addresses these particular issues and nothing beyond them. Thank you for your question, Representative Kelly. So we do know that this convention for proposing amendments is a convention of the states. The United States Supreme Court has called it that. The states and the founding generation referred to it as that. So we know that the states are the principles. They are the ones being represented by the delegations at the convention. So the state legislatures, which in Article 5 are specifically the only ones given the authority to apply for the convention, are the ones who choose and commission their delegations at the convention. But backing up just a minute, the first set of restraints on the convention actually comes in the form of those 34 applications that trigger the convention to begin with. The only issues that the convention for proposing amendments is authorized to address are those issues spelled out in the applications that actually trigger the convention. That is the only authority legally the convention has. So in the case of HJR 1, which is before you today, the convention is only authorized to consider and propose amendments that impose fiscal restraint on the federal government, limit its power and jurisdiction, and set term limits for federal officials. That is, that is the outer scope of what they would be allowed to do. Anything that comes up in consideration or debate that is not germane to that would be immediately ruled out of order. There's no legal authority for it to even be discussed. Then even beyond that, or I should say within the scope of that, the state legislatures who select and write the commissions to their delegations can impose further restrictions. So for instance, if the Ohio State Legislature wanted to participate and send their delegation to this convention, but let's say you all didn't like term limits, you could say you are not authorized to vote in favor of an amendment setting term limits that are shorter than 10 years or whatever it might be, or you're not authorized to consider them at all. So you can further limit the authority of your commissioners even beyond the scope of what's set forth in the 34 triggering applications. And then of course we know that the final bar, the final set of constraints is in the ratification process because again it takes 38 states, that's three-fourths of the states, to ratify any amendment that makes it through the convention process. To follow. Okay. Yes, Representative Stewart. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your time and testimony. I, I just want to follow up on that point. The I take the point of, you know, 
if something is proposed the majority at the convention doesn't like, then they can arguably shoot it down. But if we get to the point where 34 states call the convention, my assumption is all of the blue states are going to pass some kind of resolution themselves so that they're not left out. They're going to join the convention. And there's nothing in the text of Article 5 that would prevent those states from at least proposing whatever they want, right? I mean, California can stay up and say, resolved, repeal the Second Amendment. I mean, now they would get outvoted, but they, there's nothing preventing them from raising the issue, correct? Thank you, Representative Stewart. I would suggest, yes, there is something preventing them, and that's, again, the whole germaneness rule. And I would just encourage you to think about how your body operates when you're sitting in session. A member can't just rise on the floor and come up with something out of the blue that's not on the agenda, that hasn't gone through the committee process, and isn't ripe for consideration on that day. The same thing would be true of this. And frankly, I think it's very likely that most of the commissioners that you would see at a convention to propose amendments would be state legislators or at least people who are very familiar with the legislative process. So if something like what you just suggested were to happen, I strongly believe that it would immediately be ruled out of order, you know, a point of order would be raised and it would be sustained. It would have to be because that would be completely out of order and not germane to anything they were there to discuss. Follow up. Do we have any other questions from the committee? Okay, seeing none. Thank you again for your testimony. Thank you. And next we have um, before us today uh, Roger Gibb, uh, who is providing proponent testimony. Thank Welcome. You. Thank you very much. See. Chair Wiggum, Vice Chair John, Ranking Member Kelly, and members of the committee. My name is Roger Gibb. I've lived in Mason, Ohio for the last 23 years. My, my wife and I have five children. I am a clinical statistician. I work for the Procter & Gamble Company in their healthcare, healthcare research division. Thomas Jefferson famously said, when the people fear the government, that's tyranny. When the government fears the people, that's freedom. Right now, I personally fear what I see the federal government doing. The federal government's alarming behavior can be grouped under three general headings. First, fiscal irresponsibility. The federal government is now $29 trillion in debt and has about $150 trillion in unfunded liabilities. The federal government has not held itself to a balanced budget in at least 20 years. The President of the United States and members of Congress, for the most part, seem completely detached from financial reality, and they seem oblivious to the concept that money is not free. If ordinary citizens were to manage their budget the way that the federal government does, uh, we would all be bankrupt, okay? I fear the federal government's fiscal recklessness and the crushing consequences that will eventually fall on me, my family, my grandchildren, and this country. Second, federal overreach. Our country was founded on principles of limited government and separation of powers to prevent the concentration of too much power in any one person or one body. 
However, today our President and Congress exercise power not granted in the Constitution that were never intended by the framers of our Constitution. For example, dictating what is taught in public schools, including transgender use of bathrooms, prohibiting the mining and burning of coal, forcing citizens to be vaccinated or risk losing the opportunity to be employed and to provide for their families. The majority party in Congress right now is threatening to federalize the electoral system and eliminate time-tested pragmatic safeguards for protecting election integrity. I fear how the federal government is growing ever larger and stronger and how it imposes its will on the American people, again with power it was never granted in the Constitution. Third, corrupt career politicians. Throughout the 19th century, few members of Congress sought re-election and the turnover rate in with every election cycle was about 50%. However, in the 21st century, the turnover rate has only been about 15%, which explains why many members of Congress have been there for 20, 30, and even 40 years. That's too long. Power corrupts, and when it comes to Congress, time in office translates into power. Even a casual observer cannot deny that our Congress is rife with corruption. I fear how career politicians have corrupted our federal government. Now, I support the Convention of States movement because it gives me hope. It gives me hope that we can rein in our out-of-control federal government. It will empower the states to propose and ratify amendments to the Constitution that require the federal government to be fiscally responsible. Think about a balanced budget amendment. Ohio has a balanced budget amendment. Our country should have a balanced budget amendment. Rebuff the federal government's overreach and return power to the states, to the we the people where it belongs. And finally, imp impose term limits on Congress to send the professional politicians home. I return to the statement of Thomas Jefferson. When the people fear the government, that's tyranny. When the government fears the people, that's freedom. By and large, fear is on the lips of the people of Ohio when they speak about what the federal government's doing right now. You and your colleagues in the General Assembly now have the power with other state legislatures across this country to reverse the downward trajectory of American history. By supporting HGR1, you will enable Ohio to help invoke an Article 5 Convention of the States to strengthen our Constitution, save our country, and restore the hope of the American people. Please support HGR1. Thank you. I'd be happy to take any questions if you have. Thank you for your testimony. Do we have questions from the committee? Yes. Uh, Re Representative Skindell. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Mr. Gibbs, uh, thank you for your testimony. In reading the uh, resolution before us calling for this Article 5 convention, it uh, states in there that uh, at the convention, each state gets one vote. So therefore, um, Ohio, with a population of 11 million people, get the same vote as Montana with 1.1 million people, which I think is unfair uh, to Ohioans because uh, they're not adequately represented at the convention. Uh, I believe that the, if there is such a convention that uh, the population, uh, the vote should be based upon population so that you have kind of like a one person, one vote type of uh, uh, scenario. And I'm kind of curious what your thoughts uh, if you support uh, giving um, uh, Montana with a lesser population the same voice as Ohio um, or even a stronger voice because 
they have less people. Yeah. Well, obviously, this is how the founders set it up, and regardless of what I think, uh, it is what it is. But, you know, it's, it's not inconsistent with how the Senate is set up, right? Two votes in the U.S. Senate per state, regardless of the population. And I know the founders wanted it that way to ensure that larger states could not, because of their population, enforce their will upon smaller states. And so um, beyond that, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure what else to say other than this approach or this process that the founders set up ensures that the small states are not squashed by the large states in population. Um, I don't know if Senator. Follow up. Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. When you mention the founders, who are you talking about? Because it's not the founders to the Constitution. They didn't put it in there. The people uh, setting up this Article 5 convention system is putting it in there. Well, in the, the uh, you're saying it is, it's not explicitly written in Article 5 that one vote per state. I'm going to defer to Rita on this. Is that okay? If yeah, if we can get an answer, that'd be that'd be good. Thank you. Thank you. Representative Skindell, we know that it's one state, one vote based on historical precedent. We have a rich history of interstate conventions in this country, and that is always the way it has worked. We also know by the fact that even the U.S. Supreme Court has termed it a convention of the states, that it's the states that are represented, and they've always done so on terms of equal sovereignty. You follow up? Sure. So it's just historical, but it's not provided in the Constitution. So the legislatures can decide to uh, divide up the votes of the states based upon population, such as the House of Representatives in the United States Congress. Well, because historically it's always and only ever happened on the basis of equal sovereignty, and because in the rich um, volume of court precedents that we have of federal courts interpreting Article 5, we know that when they interpret Article 5, they have always done so in accordance with the history of Article 5 and the history of um, the processes that were used by the founders. And so that's why we know that at least initially, voting at the convention would be done on the basis of one state, one vote. And then, you know, if you get beyond that, if you say, well, could the convention vote to change the, the voting so that it's done on a more proportional basis, I think the legal answer to that is yes. I believe the political answer to that is that it would never happen. Okay, follow up. Thank you. So you're saying that the convention, once they convene, can change the parameters of the resolutions passed by the various states with regard to voting, but they cannot change based upon uh, the scope of what they're considering. To clarify, Representative Skindell, the states at the convention absolutely cannot change the scope of what they are there to consider. But it is true that the convention itself, once convened, sets its rules, its parliamentary procedures, how the committees will work, how many committees there will be, much like you do here in the state legislature. Go ahead. Go ahead, Representative Skindell. But they don't need then to comply to the resolution being passed by the states, which calls for one vote 
for one state? I, I think I understand your question, Representative Skindel. I, in looking at HJR 1, what you're talking about, that, you know, statement that the convention has always operated on a one state, one vote basis is not a part of the substantive resolution. It's what would be referred to as a reservation understanding and declaration, much like what we see used in treaties. So it's just sort of, yes, we're applying for a convention on this basis. That is absolutely binding. And furthermore, here is what we understand about the Article 5 process. We, we, we can, uh, we're going to move on and we can come back to you, Representative Skindel, if you have a, a few more questions. Okay. Um, Representative Stewart. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I don't, anybody can take this, but, the, but it was raised on term limits. And I guess I just wanted to ask about that briefly. So, and, and I love this topic because, you know, we've I've had great conversations with lots of people in the room. Um, balanced budget amendment, sign me up. Uh, term limits, candidly, I've had a lot more questions uh, over the years. and. In my free time, I read founding era history almost uh, exclusively, and one of the things that kind of comes out in that is that, you know, you look back, uh, the founders chose not to include term limits. Uh, Thomas Jefferson served 40 years in government, Madison served 42 years in government, John Adams 26 years, John Quincy Adams 54 years in government, James Monroe 42 years in government, and I would say our country was better for it, frankly. Um, and so since the founders clearly had no intention of either including term limits or abiding by them informally, why do we need them today? And, and to put a finer point on it, you know, if, if, if I think Jim Jordan is doing a great job and his constituents want him to stay for 30 years, why shouldn't we, the people, be empowered to keep him there? Yeah. I think that the examples that you cited are exceptions to the rule. Because if you go back, as I mentioned in my testimony, um, the, the turnover rate in Congress, which is what we're talking about, Congress, was about 50% every election cycle. People went to Washington, D.C. for one or two terms, came back by and large, okay? And so, yes, there are exceptions to the rule, but that was not the norm. And, uh, you, know, as it, you know, as some of the founders said, you know, men are not angels. And, and there is a natural tendency when people are subjected to power to become corrupted. And so this is a term limits, in my view, is a safeguard to basically take away the temptation. You can only be there for a certain number of years, and then you need to go home and to your profession and do what you do. And so it's really a safeguard. And yes, I, gr I agree that there are, there are people in Congress who are doing a fantastic job, who I don't believe are corrupt and so forth. But again, often that is the exception, not the norm. And so this is a, a safeguard. It's not perfect. But I think it will do a, go a long way to help protect us from the natural human tendency to gradually become uh, content with, with becoming corrupt as power, more and more power comes your way. Just my perspective. A follow-up? Okay. Seeing no other questions from the committee, thank you for your testimony. Uh, next we have Dale Maris for proponent testimony. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for letting me come and testify. My name is Dale Maris, and I'm from Harrison, Ohio, actually, and represented by uh, Cindy Abrams as my rep down in, in that part of the country. Uh, I 
I'm a retired vice president, manager, and engineer in information technology, and I've got a broad experience across the whole world, actually. I kind of came here just to kind of tell you my family story about this country and how it originated and how it started, uh, and then kind of compare it to what's happening today. So I had an early ancestor from my father's side of the, uh, that came to the country. They lived in England. He wasn't a part of the Church of England. He finally got, he got fined, and then he finally got put in prison for almost a year over there. So he got out of prison. What does he do? He brings his family. Uh, in 1683, brought his family to America, bought a piece of land from William Penn in Pennsylvania, and settled in Pennsylvania. He became a judge, he became a, a very active in the community, was very active in church, and basically the, the French church, or what is mostly known as the Quakers. And then his sons and his family carried the Quaker message out west, across the country, actually to Kansas, where my father was born and where I was born in Kansas. So came here for great opportunities and had a great opportunity. On my mother's side of the family, they moved here from Germany a couple of generations back, and they moved to Kansas. Uh, they, got, they got a farm out in the middle of Kansas in the middle of nowhere, and my great-grandfather dug a hole in the side of a hill, and they lived in a hole for a year while they were building their house. So I got an uncle that was grown up out there he was outside, seeing the stars, seeing the sky and everything else, got interested in, in the stars and the skies and stuff. So, but you know, they were a, a farmers basically. But my grandmother saved up like $30 is the story in the family, got enough money. He, he left Kansas, he walked, he walked and hitchhiked to Wisconsin because he wanted to go to college. You know, that family at that time, he's lucky if you got eighth grade education at all. So he wound up going to Wisconsin and went to college, which led him on, wound up he was a PhD from Harvard as an astrophysicist. He's discovered many, many stars and rockets. He put some of the first rockets that we ever put in the United States into, into space. So again, just how people came to this country, had the freedoms, they could do what they could do and, and use their, their selves to do that. I sort of had the same experience in my life. Uh, Neither one of my parents graduated from high school, but I wanted to go to college too, kind of like my uncle. So anyway, I managed to go to college, got a math and uh, degree in mathematics and physics, and then I, I went into the information technology. I worked for a company out in Oklahoma that allowed me to use my, brain, my mind and my brain to invent something. So I came up with a new software in the 70s that was very leading edge technology, and uh, it got accepted, was used by about, a, uh, there's about six or eight companies that market it worldwide. I happened to be over in, in, and, uh, in England one time when they were implementing the software I had developed years earlier. So there's all this opportunity, there's all these things we've done here to do that, that we have advanced civilization like no other country, no other place in the world has ever seen. Now, today, I'm concerned with the direction that we're going with everything, and that uh, things are turning around, we're getting all these restrictions placed on us. I, I actually have a son in the back of the room who's a, a pilot for American Airlines, okay? He has a generic condi condition, he's really not, should not get the vaccine. Well, he's looking at losing his job any day. He's, and he's got two of his offsprings that have changed their careers through the same, same factor. 
So now we're just restricting people who can't go to their potentials, who can't keep this country going on, you know, like we did before. So anyway, I really believe in this, in the Convention of States. I'm fully behind this, working all the time. And I think it's the peaceful, legal, proper manner to make some changes to fix these things. So I'm more here to bring my personal story. And I would add in, in Harrison, I've also went to the city council in Harrison. They unanimously passed a resolution to support the Convention of States resolution. And I can guarantee you those people out there, probably 90% of them are behind this. So I want you to know the people I see out there are so much in supportive of this that you've got a lot of constituents that's all behind this all over. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Any questions from the committee? Can't question that. It's just my history. <laughs> thank you all. All right. Um, okay, we'll move on to uh, uh, represent, or excuse me, um, Susan Dunn. Welcome. Thank you very much, Chairman Wiggum, Vice Chairwoman John, Ranking Member Kelly, and members of the committee. I am from Westchester, Ohio, House District 52, and have a great concern for what is happening to the United States of America. I am 69 years old, retired, and ashamed that I did not pay attention to the forces that were at work to change our country into something it was never intended to be. I should have spoken up decades ago about the federal government's intrusion into our daily lives, from education to health care to restrictions on business, etc. I pray that I'm not too late to finally speak up now. Have you noticed how absolutely insane the news out of Washington, D.C. has been lately? Are you aware that millions of citizens have lost faith in their ability to make a difference at the polls on Election Day? That there is a sense of the D.C. elites thinking they are the only ones who know best? The brave and brilliant founders of this country had a vision of liberty for the person that lived here then and are living here now. They clearly put the majority of the power of government into the state's hands where we, the people, live. The federal government was to be in charge of national defense, in charge of securing individual liberties, and in charge of order and justice among the states in accordance with the Constitution. What has happened in the 234 years since is that career politicians and a group of elitists have managed to take power away from the states and in tyrannical fashion concentrate it in the hands of the federal government. The founders of this country gave us the ability to correct this improper balance of power that they suspected could eventually happen. Article 5 of the Constitution of the United States of America. Article 5 is important to me because it is the best way for the people in our states of residence to release the federal stranglehold on this nation of United States. 
I have put my energies into Convention of States because I believe that Washington, D.C. will never be willing to correct itself. It is up to us, and it is up to you who represent the residents of Ohio, to be as brave as were our founding fathers. Their design for this country provided the most amazing structure for the benefits of its citizens then and now. Whether that original structure will bless us into the future as well depends on 34 states supporting the call for a convention of states. Please, make Ohio one of them. I, my children, and my grandchildren are counting on you. Thank you for your service to Ohio and for this opportunity to address your committee. Okay, thank you for your testimony. Uh, next we have uh, Diana Tellus. Welcome. Chairman Wiggum, Vice Chairwoman John, Ranking Member Kelly and me members of the committee. I am from Westchester, House District 52. I'm a homeschooling mother with two children currently schooling with me, one attending nursing school, and an adult son recently married and graduated from college. We have exemplified hard work and self-reliance at home, never indicating to our children to expect financial support from anywhere, including us in the long term. We assisted in covering large portions of college tuition, warning that the funds are not infinite. While we have enjoyed fulfilled lives, tuition funds my husband and I saved represent decades of new cars we did not purchase, entertainment we avoided, and extravagant vacations we did not take. My daughter, in her second year of a rigorous nursing school program, faces future employment in a severely broken government-run healthcare system further desecrated by unconstitutional mandates. My oldest, realizing a lifelong dream of owning his own business, recently be became a franchisee of a tree service company. He slowly advances his station in life in lieu of government-funded labor force, uninspired to work, a political climate unfavorable to small business, and an economy riddled by inflation where citizens realize less disposable income. There was a time when young Americans entering the workforce could at the very least count on a culture largely supportive of a free market. Americans of all ages today must grapple head on with socialism. We face endless devastation in the wake of nefarious big government activity. Education has failed. We choke down increasing federal monitoring of bank activity, mandates, U.S. Attorney General who threatens citizens and gets away with it, wide open borders, coddled foreign enemies, bills looming in U.S. Congress proposing the spending of trillions of dollars we do not have, and an inconceivable national debt north of $29 trillion. Article 5 can establish an economic climate conducive to a free market and capitalism. It can also restore state sovereignty, liberty, and self-governance. In every other possible way, we have trusted the writers of the Constitution. We must also trust in Article 5 as the means to insert liberty amendments to restore the Constitution. 
Our founders did not shy away from the concept of doing things differently or from accepting risk. The state created the federal government, not the other way around. Now it is your job to help us fix it using a convention of states as our tool. I implore you to stand up for state sovereignty and for my hardworking children entering the workforce. Without a convention, this country will fall to the point where we no longer recognize it. It is falling. When you regretfully look back on the events that contributed to that downward spiral, at what exact point on the timeline is the threshold where you realize maybe we should have at least had a convention? We say it is now. Please vote in favor of sending HJR1 to the House floor, and thank you for your service to Ohio and for this opportunity to address the committee. Thank you for your testimony. Um, is there any questions from the committee? Okay. Uh, Representative Ginter. Would you uh, take questions from the committee? I do not mind. Thank you for your testimony, and uh, thank you for taking your time to do the work on that, which obviously you, as a citizen of the United States, feel very, very important. For some reason, can you hear me? Now we are. For some reason, um, there are a lot of mistruths going on. Uh, sometimes that's out of ignorance. Uh, you know, we're, we're not familiar with the process, and because of unfamiliarity, it sometimes breeds some untruths. Mark Twain said, however, sometimes I think it's because there, there's a deliberate undermining of, of, this potential, of the potentiality of the Convention of States. Mark Twain said that the uh, lie can get halfway around the world before truth gets its pants on. And so I believe that even faster know, now, right? Even even faster now. So a couple things I would like to clear up. And I guess as I was listening to your testimony and the testimonies of others that have preceded you, I would like to dig down a little bit if I could. I think that what I have heard in the testimonies and many of which I would agree with are is that there are some decisions that are being made that I certainly am not in agreement with in Washington DC. <clears throat> in regards to the direction of our nation. But lest a convention of states be misconstrued to be merely an effort on the part of people who are upset because things are not going the way that we want them or you want them to go in Washington, D.C., I think it's important that we dig deeper for those that are listening in to this mm -hmm. conversation. So I'm not wanting to put words in your mouth, but as I listen to the thrust of your testimony, is it simply because you're not in agreement with some of the decisions that are being made, uh, let us be forthright, by the current administration? Or is it deeper than that? Does it go deeper than that? Uh, in, in that, and again, I would like to, to finish, but I would be putting words in your mouth. Is it because you're simply upset over decisions that are being made, or is there something fundamentally deeper than that that stirs you to, to, to make the effort that you're making for a convention of states? Right. And I am a district captain, and I am on a communications team, and I do work hard for a convention of states. I'm not just here, you know, as somebody who stepped in. I am a volunteer, an avid volunteer. Um, I've always been against big government. The bigger the government, the more corruption. 
So it doesn't matter to me who's president at the time. I am a limited government person. Um, I definitely think that we are experiencing tyranny, and the things in my testimony definitely outline the tyranny that I am disgusted with. And I don't think we very often step backward away from that. We're moving closer to it's socialism, Marxism, and I don't like it, and I do not want my kids to experience it, and I want them to have a better life, and I have to do something. But it isn't just the administration. It's years and years of, it's, it's a bipartisan thing. When we talk about term limits, it's not just term limits for, you know, Democrats or Republicans, it's for everybody. And you would have to accept then that there are good politicians on both sides that would be limited. But um, part of the big government problem that we have is these, um, you know, they get to Washington, D.C., they make a lot of money. They make a lot of money. That's in the news right now. We know they are getting rich there. And then they're harder to move, they dig in their heels, and they cannot be moved. So I think the term limit, I, I had people challenge me on term limits because if the American people vote for those people to be their representative, that's the people they've spoken. But they're, they're too hard to move. And I think that we definitely need to take a long, hard look at that and make that change. And that's what we want to do with Article 5. Does that follow up? So if we dig down to the depths of perhaps the fundamental reason that you're supporting the Convention of States, would it be safe to say, and I'm trying not to lead the witness here, that, that it is not necessarily the decisions that are being made by any administration, but it is the centralization of government. Correct. That, and, that is the fundamental driving force behind your right. motivation. So what Article 5 can do ultimately is decentralize the federal government is what we want to do. And the states, the st I said the states created the federal government. They did. It was not the, the, this big federal government created their little children. That's not what we are. The states created the federal government. The states had, you know, conventions to do that. And that's what we're looking to do. And so we, we, we uh, want to decentralize the federal government. The states would have more power. The power is more local to the people. Okay. And, um, you know, Florida can be Florida, and California can still be California, and Indiana can be Indiana, Ohio can be Ohio. That is the way it should be done, not us all choking down what Washington says. That's just not how this was designed. It is not how this was designed. So uh, Article 5 can do that. Did I address what you were, <laughs> what you were feeding me to say? <laughs> I mean, bring it on. I've got whatever. Anybody else? <laughs> Okay. So no further questions. Thank you for your testimony. And we call to the podium Steve Jones. Welcome. Thank you. Chairman Wiggum, Vice Chair John, Ranking Member Kelly, I want to thank you for this opportunity to share my perspective. And I also, while I'm here, uh, thank you for not skipping me. Um, but also, I want to say hi to my good friend, uh, Representative Dean. Representative Dean, we've known each other for 35 years now. Good to see you. Some years ago, I became frustrated with my powerlessness in affecting and slowing the growth of the federal intrusion into the affairs of my plumbing business and civilian life. Yes, I know Representative Dean because we used to plumb together and he taught me some life lessons and some plumbing. So he's, uh, he's important to me. I felt that my efforts to, I'm sorry, let me go back. 
I felt that my efforts to organize opposition to federal policies was like playing whack-a-mole with issues and a futile effort since I had no real voice in federal affairs. You know, whack-a-mole, the carnival game, the one thing over here, and, and you want to address an issue or a concern. While you're working over here to try to batten that down, 500 other things pop up and, and you can't uh, handle everything. I was actually preparing to live in a hole in the ground and let the country descend into chaos and tyranny without me. That's how hopeless I felt. I was introduced to the Citizens for Self-Governance and the Convention of States project, and that filled me with hope that there was a solution equal to the problem, a solution that was based in the Constitution and promoting an offensive rather than just a defensive strategy to preserve my self-governance rather than having to accept tyranny. Our opponents, which are vocal but few in number, would encourage all of us to play a better game of whack-a-mole with the issues, one at a time. I would rather go on the offensive. They based their argument on the myth that the Constitutional Convention was a runaway convention exceeding their authority. And they ignored the truth that 10 states had sent authorized delegates to draft a new constitution as the second Annapolis Convention resolution had recommended. Our opponents will dazzle and confuse you with quotations from our venerable founders. However, the bottom line is this. The framers knew that the federal government could become destructive to their own ends of individual liberty. They knew that the federal government would not restrain their own power and jurisdiction. They knew full well that the states would need to band together to protect their own citizens from a long train of abuses and usurpations. And for these reasons, they gave the states the authority to pursue a call for an Article 5 Convention of States to propose amendments to the U.S. Constitution and reign in the federal authority. Within our HJR 1, seven times you will see that it refers back in its authority to the uh, Article 5, which is an amendment proposing convention and ratification process. You will see it in, in our HJR 1 on line 2, 23, line 27, line 35, line 44, line 60, and line 80. And I would like to ask you all, being on the committee, to do me a small favor. Obviously, yes, I'd like you to pass HJR 1 and allow it to go to the House floor for a vote. But when our opposition comes, and when it comes, uh, I would like to ask you and invite you to ask them several questions. Have you read HJR 1? I feel like there's a disconnect because I have encountered people and had arguments with people as I've shared uh, Convention of States before with other people. There seems to be a disconnect between the ethereal way out there, what happened long ago, and this document right here, which is in front of you. And it occurs to me that it's as if they never actually read the document. And I would ask them, have you read the document? Um, you could even ask them, have you read the Ohio Legislative Service Commission report on 
It's a little shorter. It's too hard to read the four pages. There's only two pages here. And then I have uh, gone to my city council in Mason, Ohio many times. And whenever I go, I, I get the agenda in advance and then I have to ask uh, to see the legislation. We call them ordinances in Mason. And then I download them, I read them, and then I get a chance to do some homework. And when I go there to give testimony in Mason, the testimony is always exactly based on the text and the wording of the resolution. And so if I were in committee instead of you, I would want to ask, what specific problems do you have with HJR 1? Not what problems do you have with all the history that goes way back or whatever you think you understand. I appreciate your perspective, but what is the actual issue? Can you cite something in here that is a, a problem that you have? Um, I, I would ask that you do those things. And if you have more concerns, I would invite you also to read up and study on the first and second Annapolis conventions. Uh, and you can check out for yourself whether my assertions or, or Rita's assertions are true. Thank you for this opportunity to give testimony. Thank you for your testimony. Okay. Now we'll move forward to um, Rob McCarthy. Welcome. Welcome. Chairman Wiggum, Vice Chair John, Ranking Member Kelly, and members of the committee. Thank you for allowing me to present my, my personal testimony here. My name is Robert McCarthy. I reside in Wayne County, up there with the chairman. And uh, so I'd like to start by asking a question which I think a lot of people are asking themselves, why a convention of states? My answer is, why not a convention of states? As a town councilman for over 10 years, I've taken upon myself to study our nation's history and the intent of our founding fathers, and I'm astounded at how far our nation has strayed from that intent. All one has to do to realize this fact is to look at Article 1, Section 8 of our U.S. Constitution that lists the responsibilities of the federal government. Very few and limited. And then read the Tenth Amendment. Quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, not prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The current federal government is anything but limited and especially in these last 11 months we have seen it encroaching into every area of our lives from how we worship to what we put in our bodies. The greatest fear of our founders was a runaway federal government as opposed to the fear of a runaway convention. Their premise being an understanding of human nature 
as seen in James Madison's famous quote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And if angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. Therefore, they implemented various checks and balances in our Constitution, along with separation of powers between the three branches, the lines of which unfortunately have been blurred over time by the avarice of men. The last check put in place by the founders is Article 5, which Colonel George Mason of Virginia insisted be put in place before he would sign the Constitution as a protection for the states from a settled central government that he feared would become too powerful. In the end, he still did not sign, for as James Madison explained, quote, no amendments of the proper kind would ever be obtained by the people if the government should become oppressive as he, Mason, verily believed would be the case. Just as our founding fathers pursued every legal route they could to protect their rights as English citizens from the repeated abuses of power by the king before the American Revolution, so it behooves us to do the same now to protect the rights of the citizens of these United States by following the legal route given us by them. Article 5. Remember our Constitution has worked well for us over the last 234 years. Considering that the average length of a Constitution globally since 1787 is 17 years, I would say they did something right. So why not give the legal safety valve they included for the protection of we the people a try. In the words of President Ronald Reagan during the last national debate over a convention of states, if not when, if not now, when, if not us, who? The national debt was $3 trillion then, and now? And in response to the fear of a runaway convention of states, let's look at the mandate for the last and only convention. After time, it became apparent that the Articles of Confederation drawn up in 1777 as the foundation document for the newly formed United States gave very little power to the central government to regulate its domestic affairs Therefore, the existing Confederation of States finally convinced the Continental Congress in February 1787 to call for a convention of delegates to meet in May in Philadelphia, quote, to devise such further provisions as shall appear to them necessary to render the Constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies 
of the Union. So we see that it was not a runaway convention at all, but rather one that clearly followed the mandate of the states which called for it. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you for your testimony, Rob. Yes. Seeing no questions, we'll move on to uh, Dr. Ron Arndt. Welcome. Thank you. Respectfully, Chairman Wiggum, Vice Chair John, Ranking Member Kelly, and committed members here of this committee. I've been a lifelong resident here in Ohio, retiring from three professional careers. My first career was practicing dentistry for 21 years, five years in financial planning and investment management, and nearly 17 years as a professionally certified business coach. My fourth career, and arguably my most challenging, invigorating, and I'll tell you this, exhausting, is that of being Papa Ron to five granddaughters, all under the age of five and a half. So I stand here before you on behalf of the order, horrors that I'm witnessing beset our country and the perils for all we patriotic Americans and most notably for the potentially dreadful future for my grandkids and millions others like them. My wish is that this testimony will optimistically encourage your attitude of support for the passage of HJR 1. Now I believe any citizen who is wakeful, conscious, and contemporary can see the total shift in the behavior, leadership, and the philosophy of our republic. The bombastic indulgences of the Washington Beltway ruling class has so engulfed our liberties as Americans that I feel we're losing not only our identity, but we're losing our freedoms. The founders of our great republic knew that Congress, with their penchant for power, control, would never ever limit their self-serving federal supremacy. Accordingly, they incorporated a way for the states to propose amendments to rein in this power, to retain control of the government, and keep it in the hands of uh, we, the people, as indicated in our Constitution. Founders, by virtue of Article 5 of our U.S. Constitution, gave us a legitimate path to save our liberty and subvert tyranny. I believe we must use the power granted to the states in the Constitution to convene a convention of states with the sole intent, the singular focus, of proposing amendments. I'm here soliciting every committee member to unify with me in a nonpartisan way. And let me state this again. This is not an R issue. It's not a D issue. It's a we issue. And I ask that in a nonpartisan way, you join with now 
nearly 100,000 Ohio petition signers in support of the use of Article 5 of the Constitution to call a convention for a particular subject, a very clear subject, and that is reducing the power of Washington, D.C. Won't you support us in reining in the major abuses perpetrated by the federal government? Help us rein in federal spending and debt sprees. Help us rein in the power grabs of the federal courts and the unending terms of our congresspersons, federal judges, and oh my, the bureaucrats. Ladies and gentlemen, I implore you to join with me and an activist army of liberty-loving Ohioans to support an affirmative state and local government committee vote on HJR1 to enable us to bring it to a full House vote for the support and strong call for a convention of states. Unite with us, won't you, with the other 15 states who have done the same? So I'm here looking for those brave patriots who will face them with us. And as I wrap up, please accept my appreciation for your service to our people here in Ohio. I served two terms as city council president in North Ridgeville, Ohio, arguably the fastest growing city in the state. And I know personally just how much one's hard and good efforts often go unnoticed nor appreciated. And I stand here to share my appreciation for you. Thank you for your testimony. Will you take uh, questions? Will you take questions? Um, we're going to start with Representative Stewart. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your testimony and thanks for your, your service as well. And so being on council, you, you know how to count votes too. And so I'm oh, kind of yeah. going through and game planning out this process a little bit mm -hmm. and, and, and counting votes uh, under this potential convention. So we need 38 states to ratify, which means, you know, something comes out. Uh, I like the limitations you're talking about. We're going to limit the power of the federal government. We're going to impose fiscal restraint. Uh, but that means that essentially 13 states can tank any amendment that comes out, right? Because we got to get to 38. Okay. Um, looking at the last election, electoral college count right down the middle, 25 red states, 25 blue states. If we're imposing restrictions to ensure that the only amendments that come out of the convention are what I think are pretty conservative-minded uh, objectives, and I agree with them, how are we convincing 13 blue states to flip and vote for conservative uh, constraints on the federal government? They don't typically uh, want to limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, not big on fiscal restraint. How do we make sure that if we go down this road, we're not just spinning our wheels? So, Representative Stewart, I might take issue with, it seems like it's only conservative issues. And from my perspective, as I had mentioned in my testimony, that this is clearly bipartisan. I guess I would ask how many people sit standing or sitting in front of me or in this audience can live 
their life budget by having more month than money. I don't see that as bipartisan. I don't see that as conservative. One can also argue about the issues around term limits. I think we heard earlier testimony that there are folks on both sides of the aisle that one could argue, geez, I think it's time. I learned also in my seat and city council, serving as president for two terms, that was enough. Not because it was an ugly job, but it was, okay, I came in, I did my thing, I made my contribution. And so as a consequence, I see not so much are Republican or Democratic. And so how do we convince those other 13 states? I think it's quite frankly by at least putting the conversation out there so that folks can, I, we heard earlier testimony, at least give us that opportunity to debate because I believe that what Convention of States and this process all stands for is not about anything other than making this republic better than what it is. Follow up? Okay, Representative Skindell. Okay. Okay. Um, thank you for your testimony. Uh, we have with us now is um, Ed Mulholland. Welcome. Chairman Wiggum, Vice Chairwoman John, Ranking Member Kelly, members of the committee. Let me begin by thanking you for your service. In today's heated political environment, it takes courage to stay in the fight. My name is Ed Mulholland. I live in Zanesville, Ohio, House District 97, with my wife of 32 years. I have two sons, one at Ohio University and one working in New Albany. I know the state well, and I'm proud to call Ohio my home. My support for this resolution stems from my appreciation for the precarious nature of freedom. Americans have enjoyed the freedoms and bounties of our great nation for generations, but now we seem prone to take them for granted. I was fortunate, however, to gain an appreciation of our freedoms as a young cavalry officer stationed in Germany near the Fulda Gap. I walked along the border between East and West Germany. I saw the guard towers watching for freedom seekers who might attempt to escape the Iron Curtain. My defensive position at the head of the 3rd Armored Division was inside the 1K zone, overlooking the fence. There I, I enjoyed the incredible gratitude of the locals, who understood the precarious nature of their freedom as they lived in the shadow of that fence, which represented the ugliness of an all-powerful government execute exercising absolute control over its citizens. That experience taught me that freedom is indeed precarious, and I worry that we are slowly losing hours to a Leviathan federal government that is clearly never satisfied. Our country gets more divided with each new incursion upon our freedoms, and that division could ultimately destroy us. More rules, more regulations, more taxes, all from a self-glorifying, entrenched regime 400 miles away. How can they possibly know the needs of Ohioans better than you who live, work, and raise your families here? This is not a Republican or Democrat issue. 
This is a who decides issue. It's an opportunity to restore the balance of power, returning important decisions to the state level where citizens can have more influence. If you share my concerns that an ever-growing federal bureaucracy has and continues to erode our individual freedoms, then you must agree it's time for states to stand up for their citizens and restore the balance of power. The founders foresaw these problems, and they gave us this Convention of States to correct them. If you believe, as I do, that the U.S. Constitution is a truly historic document of epic importance, written by men of incredible wisdom, then you must also accept the wisdom of Article 5. Earlier, I thanked you for the courage you've shown us uh, by your service as representatives. Now I challenge that courage by imploring you to take a stand in defense of states' rights and the U.S. Constitution. There are those among us unwilling to take bold action because the outcome is not guaranteed. I say they share a legacy with those so aptly described by Theodore Roosevelt as timid souls who will never know victory nor defeat. The founders faced a far more difficult choice. Thank God they did not allow a fear of the unpredictable to dissuade them from their righteous cause. Will you earn the right to share their legacy? I urge you to support HJR1 and pass it on to the House for a full vote. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Any questions? Okay, I call forward now Elizabeth uh, Margolis. All right. Welcome. Thank you. Chairman Wiggum, Vice Chairwoman John, Ranking Member Kelly, and members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to present my testimony regarding Convention of States. I am a homeschooling mom of three crazy little boys from Powell, Ohio, House District 67. Prior to staying home with my children, I was an apparel buyer for Fortune 500 companies in New York City and Boston. Balance is a word used by the framers of our Constitution. Balance between three branches of government, balance between the states and the federal government, balance between people and government. Balance means to be in a state of equilibrium. Today, however, we live in a state of perpetual imbalance. Take, for example, regulations. According to regulations.gov, there are over 220 federal agencies, and in 2019, those agencies passed almost 3,000 regulations, while Congress passed 105 laws. Federal regulations cost us $2 trillion annually and affect each of us. Employers pay almost $10,000 per employee to comply with regulations. Regula regulatory costs at the state, local, and federal level add over 30% to the cost of a new home. With each bill passed by Congress, each executive order cast, we continue to pile on more and more regulations. So how do we restore the balance? Congress could restore balance, but try getting a majority of Congress to agree on anything let alone diminishing the power of the federal government. How many years have we heard Congress discuss 
term limits. The Heritage Foundation called for congressional term limits in an article in 1994, and here we are in 2022 still talking about term limits. No one in a position of power ever wants to decrease their power voluntarily, so we cannot hold our breath for Congress. What about the judicial branch? The Supreme Court has no formal powers stated in the Constitution to enforce their rulings. We rely solely on the President and Congress's willingness to obey the ruling. But what happens if one day they just decide they don't? In 2021, the executive branch bypassed Congress and implemented a moratorium on evictions through the CDC. The Supreme Court struck down the CDC's moratorium on rent in June, and the executive branch ignored the ruling, extending the moratorium. In August, the Supreme Court ruled again, and the executive branch reluctantly stepped aside. A narrow win for, pri for private property rights. But what about the next time? What happens when the branches that were created to protect our freedoms begin to prey on our freedoms? What happens when we become the prey and our own government grows into a predator? The framers knew that this could happen one day, and so they created Article 5. Article 5 has the power to end federal usurpations and place constraints on an out-of-control government. Article 5 is a reboot, a way and a restoration back to balance and control given to the people and the states and not a central government. I hope that you too will support giving power back to the people and yourselves as state legislators by passing HJR 1 in this committee and sending it to the House for a full vote. Thank you so much for your service to Ohio and for allowing me the opportunity to share with you my testimony. Thank you for your testimony. Okay, seeing no questions, um, we're going to now um, have Susan uh, Kaler come forward. Welcome. Thank you. Chairman Wiggum, Vice Chairwoman John, Ranking Member Kelly and members of the committee. What was to be a relatively innocuous federal government operating from a defined enumeration of specific grants of power has become an ever-present and unaccountable force. It is the nation's largest creditor, debtor, lender, employer, consumer, contractor, grantor, property owner, tenant, insurer, healthcare provider, and pension grantor. Moreover, with aggrandized police powers, what it does not control directly, it bans or mandates by regulation. This was written by Mark R. Levin in his 2013 book entitled The Liberty Amendments, Restoring the American Republic. We have witnessed nonstop spending, taxation, and borrowing from our nation's futures by both parties. Between 2010 and 2012, there were 69 bankruptcy filings of U.S. cities, towns, and counties. At the time, this led me to wonder how close we may be to a state declaring bankruptcy. 
And what would happen if our country continued to print unsecured money or lose its ability to borrow? Presidential candidates from both parties that year rarely, if ever, mentioned the necessity for government to exercise fiscal restraints similar to those required of families and small business. In other words, living within their means. Fast forward 10 years to today, in which elected officials have easily and quickly transitioned to budgeting for trillions, not billions, which replaced millions all in my lifetime. This astonishing fact has created a psychological disconnect between taxpayers and tax spenders in our government. I'm concerned to see elected officials in many states and at every level let their citizens down. Congress passes laws that they haven't had time to read and that don't apply to them. It's becoming normalized for presidents of both parties to rule by executive order, to impose mandates, or to incentivize states with money to act as enforcers of illegal acts. Judges increasingly show bias and refuse to hear credible cases. I'm a law-abiding, lifelong Ohio resident, retired mom of two productive young adults, a 1979 graduate of Miami University's Business School, a former small business operator myself, wife of a, of a retired public school teacher, and a Convention of States volunteer. Hardly a domestic terrorist, but my beliefs about what I see happening in the United States may get me tagged as such. Where am I going with this? Members of this committee are not called on to solve every problem America faces. You are simply called on to be the voice of the people. With nearly 100,000 petition signers in Ohio, the average House District has over 1,000 supporters calling for a legal check on our runaway federal government. Our grassroots army across Ohio has volunteered their time on this effort to call for an amendments convention. Some people, including some in this room, have worked the entire eight years since the release of Mark Levin's book and the launch of the nonprofit, nonpartisan group Convention of States. Our volunteers are counting on their house reps to support them on this issue. My request today is that you in this committee vote yes to pass HJR1. If not, you will be silencing Ohioans in all 84 House districts not represented by this committee. Please allow the conversations our volunteers are having with their own legislators to continue. Every citizen in Ohio should be represented when the final floor vote is taken on HJR1 because this resolution has the power to determine the future of our representative republic. HJR1 offers the unique possibility to correct some of the previously mentioned abuses of an unaccountable federal government by focusing on one of the greatest checks of all, restoring the powers reserved for the states. Provided for your reference are links in your iPads below to research and legal writings of Robert G. Nadelson, widely acknowledged to be the country's leading active scholar on, Constitution article, on the Constitution's Article 5 Amendment procedure. He researches independently and has been cited repeatedly at the United States Supreme Court, Federal Appeals Courts, and State Supreme Courts. The link, includes the link includes comprehensive research into our country's rich history of multi-state conventions. Who, what, where, why, when, and how they were conducted and what the results were. 
This thorough time-tested research dates back earlier than 1776 and is provided to assuage the fears regarding a meeting of commissioners from the 50 states to propose amendments to the U.S. Constitution. We also today have copies of Rob Nadelson's more abbreviated book, since the link, the link I talked to is almost 400 pages footnoted, and uh, it's a quicker read than you would think. But it's a great reference book with an awesome table of contents that might lead you to get your questions answered uh, without having the need to read the full book. We also have copies of the Article 5 abbreviated version here to pass out for legislators today. Um, I thank you for your service to Ohio and for this opportunity to share with the committee my confidence in Article 5 and my faith in the American people working through this, the People's House, to restore our country. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Questions from the uh, committee? Seeing none, we call to uh, the podium uh, John Williams. Welcome. Honorable Chairman William, Honorable Vice Chairman, Vice Chair John, and Honorable Representatives and Committee members. My name is John Williams, and I was for almost seven years a state leader in several positions for a Convention of States project. Today I stand before you simply as a resident of Ohio, a voter and taxpayer, but most importantly, a citizen of the greatest country that has ever existed on this God-given earth. Let me please begin with this question. Our U.S. Constitution is hanging on a string. And what do you plan on doing about it? Today we have become a nation based on a society of rule by man. The Constitution, once held in high esteem, is now often ignored, changed to meet the opinion of a judge or bureaucrat, or is considered to be outdated. Whereas our founders revered it and considered it a document written for the ages. Many hate this nation's form of representative republic government and are dedicated to destroying it, while others are apathetic and could care less about its rapidly deteriorating condition. The choice before us, and especially you, is plain. Responsibility or chaos? Conviction or compromise? Discipline or disintegration? It is not too late to reverse the present trend, but we must start now. I believe that foresight through hindsight conduces insight, which we so badly need now. You are the keys to the solution. You, the representatives of the state, the states who jointly created the government, are the center of the recipe of the secret sauce that can save it. 
You have been put in this crucial position to begin the saving of our country and Constitution. In your prior hearing, Representative Ginter, in an answer to a comment, recalled this, desperate times call for desperate measures, such as the case today. The founders were not custom building the Constitution for any particular age or economy. They were structuring a framework of government to fit the requirements of human nature, which does not change. Though there was hardly a single idea which our American founders put into their recipe that someone hadn't thought of before, the singularity of it all was the, the fact that in 1787, none of those ideas were being substantially practiced anywhere in the world. Now that many of those founder principles are fading into oblivion and all the problems have reason to plague humanity, hope is raised again. In the prior hearing, Representative Grindel alluded to the fact that many of her constituents are looking to her for hope. Representatives, you have that hope in your hands. Without elaborating on the structure of government as built by the <clears throat> founders, which you certainly understand, I want to focus on the most important element, other than that the power of we the people manifested in the Constitution is birthed in the Declaration of Independence, and it is unalienable and therefore absolute. That most important element to be the checks and balances, which Mr. McCarthy has already talked about and the protection of the rights of the people. This is mentioned throughout Articles 1, 2, 3, and 4. This principle of checks and balances is lastly structured in the second part of Article 5, which is what we're here for. These checks and balances of we the people exercised by the people's state representatives is the key ingredient in the founding in the founders uh, secret sauce to save our nation i thank you for this opportunity to testify in this most critical hearing process and i implore you to support the cos resolution HDR1 as the only logical and available solution to restore America. Thank you for your testimony. Do we have any questions from the committee? Okay, seeing none. Thank you again for your testimony today. Uh, and that concludes the, uh, uh, the testimony, the proponent testimony, uh, in-person proponent testimony. Before the committee, you have uh, written testimony um, that is uh, on your uh, tablets, so you can read that, um, uh, continue to read that uh, as we go forward. Um, this will conclude uh, the second hearing.
for HJR1, uh, uh, Convention of States. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com.